Hey, this is Adam. And Matt. And here's what's coming up on this week's CarCast. Rock stars were the only people that looked like rock stars. Right. That's how it used to be. Yeah. Um, now, now you go into the Apple store, <laughs> yeah. and every one of those kids has, like, they're tattooed up and got piercings and hair jacked out all over the place, and everybody looks like a musician. You right. Know? I noticed one night we lined up for the bow at the end of the show, and me and every one of my guys had dark blue jeans and a black T-shirt on and Converse All-Stars. And I'm like, this is not <laughs> cutting it. So we've actually been st- trying to step it up a bit. And we did the gig with George Thorogood, and we were about to go on, and my drummer, Chris Layton, who was the drummer for Stevie Ray Vaughan and Double Trouble. Wow. And he's a dear friend, and he walks out, and he's got this vest on with no shirt. And he's like, what do you think, man? And I'm like, you're not serious, are you? T-shirt. Listen for free through iTunes, the free Adam Carolla app, or visit acecarcast.com. This is Corolla Digital. Hello, my little raisinettes. It's me, Allison. Before the show officially starts, a few words. Gary, I think we have some iTunes comments of the week. Allison wants your iTunes comments. Allison wants them. Yes, she does. Please leave her some iTunes comments and don't forget to click five stars. All right, our first iTunes comment of the week comes from Brady Dale, and it is titled Honest and Humble. There's a humility to Allison that you don't hear much at her level in the entertainment world. True. It's as if you can kind of hear her still working out everything in her head as she does her show. Yes. She's also got honesty. She's also got an honesty to her that's a little different. She doesn't have her shields up quite the way that other ladies who have gotten where she's gotten do. So true. What I can't figure out about Rosen is who she is in the entertainment space. Nor can I. Is she a comic? A talk show host? A personality? What is she? I don't know. Maybe she's creating a new archetype for the internet age. I don't know. Do you? I I don't, but I want to. Uh, But I do think that it's funny that we're reading this comment about how humble I am and all my humility because it is so not humble at all to read this comment on the show and celebrate it. See, that's just just like, who am I? I'm uh, multiple things. Did I cut you off? You did not. Okay. We, We have one more if you're ready. Oh, we're ready. Okay. This is by Camilla Collar, and it is titled, you don't li- Oh, you don't like Allison Rosen? I'm sorry. That's absolutely a lie. It says, you don't like Allison Rosen? Oh, I'm sorry. And apparently I'm dyslexic, so I apologize as well. And I think there might be more to the title that got cut off on our screen, but I imagine maybe it said, hey, go F yourself. Who knows? Well, title questions notwithstanding, this reads, Allison is extremely funny, wicked smart, completely genuine, and here's the kicker. She's so good at steering the conversation with her guests that you probably won't even notice how much learned skill and or God-given talent it takes to get interviewees to open up and speak so personally. If you're sitting there like an idiot thinking, I don't get it, what's the big deal? Her guest was just talking a bunch about their life. That's because when Allison's got a great guest, which she almost always does... She's like an effing veteran jazz drummer, directing the whole set with fluid precision that's so exact you don't even realize it's happening. It just sounds like a band is riding a perfect wave of magical musical flow, all because Allison's subtly orchestrating the whole thing using finger snaps and brushes and shit. Well, she's absolutely right, and I appreciate the comment. Um, Yeah, that's so nice. Thank you very much. And if you would like to leave a very glowing iTunes comment that includes five stars, you might have your comment read on this here show. 
Um, and, you know, or just a really honest comment that happens to be exclusively positive and click five stars. And, okay. Um, yeah. And if you want to email the show, it's A-R-I-Y-M-B-F at AdamCarolla.com. And I think I'm thinking about maybe starting something where if you email me and tell me about uh, an Amazon purchase you made through the banner at AllisonRosen.com, then I'll read that email on the show. So, you know, do that if you want. And also, I would like to tell you guys a little bit about my friends at Stamps.com. Stamps.com is great. You can print official U.S. postage right from your computer at home or at your office. It's great for people who have a small business, for people who are sending out a lot of stuff. We use it at the shop here. Um, Also, if you're selling stuff on eBay, this is the thing for you. But not just if you're selling stuff on eBay. Basically, if you are the per- a kind of person who runs an office or uh, runs a business out of your home where you don't want to take the time and the inconvenience to be schlepping to the post office all the time, that is why you can do everything that you would do at the post office right from your computer. Right from your computer. Could it be any better than that? No. And here's an embarrassing admission. Uh, When I was young, I collected rubber stamps. And for years now, my mom, in whose house the rubber stamps reside, has been saying that I should sell them on eBay. Because apparently you can do some brisk business on on eBay with your rubber stamps. And I've always thought, I'd like to do that, but that sounds like way too much work because I don't want to have to deal with having to, you know, package them up and go to the post office. But with Stamps.com, which I now have, uh, including the scale that they throw in, I can do it all and I can make a ton of money. I'm going to be super rich with my rubber stamp business. But, you know, if you're doing something that's not that lame, stamps.com would also be wonderful for you. So right now, use my name, Allison, for this special offer. It's a no-risk trial. It's a $110 bonus offer. It includes a digital scale and up to $55 of free postage. $55, that is a lot. Don't wait. Go to Stamps.com. Before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in Allison. That's Stamps.com. Enter Allison. And as a reminder, uh, when you're entering Allison, that is because they are tracking who came to them via my podcast. So, you guys, if you love this show and me and this annoying tone of voice I'm adopting as I'm saying this, it would um, actually be wonderful if you could sign up for Stamps.com because you'll love it. And then they'll see that that this is a good place for them to... uh, be a sponsor. Okay. Also, go to meeting. We love go to meeting. You can host online meetings on your computer or on your iPad, and you can see who the people that you're meeting with. You can hear them. It's crystal clear. It's in HD. You can collaborate on documents. Um, if you have to meet with people and it has to be face to face, you don't have to go there anymore. You can just do it from wherever you are, be it a hammock, a golf course, a coffee house. Jamaica, Queens, Jamaica, Jamaica, any sort of island or atoll, uh, basically anywhere you are, now you don't have to go to the office to get done what you would get done at the meeting at the office. Gary? Yeah, it's it's so cool. I mean, you can definitely do, you know, the HD faces video chat, which is really, 
very crystal clear and what works like a champ. And then, you know, if you have somebody who needs to participate in the meeting who maybe isn't by a computer at that time, they can also phone in and be a, a participant on that side um, and just without the visual comp, uh, component. But uh, we were using this the other day to have a we meeting. We talked to someone in France. Yes, we did. And he was he was wearing a, uh, a beret as if to ensure that we believed he was in France. It, that, was, it was great. That's how crystal clear the quality was. With all four little pictures on the screen, it was very clear who was in France. Yes, it was. It's a great product, and uh, they're good people over at Citrix. They have a great support yeah, staff. Yeah, we love so, them. Uh, I would highly recommend to anyone who's uh, interested in any kind of video conferencing, go to meetings, place to be. Mm-hmm. Start hosting your own face-to-face meetings, face-to-face online meetings today with GoToMeeting. My listeners can try it free for 45 days. 45 days? Don't wait for this special offer. Visit GoToMeeting.com, click on the Try It Free button, and use the promo code Allison. Be sure to use the promo code Allison. Because I'm Allison. That's me. That's why that's a promo code in case you are having trouble wrapping your head around that. All right, you guys. Here comes the episode. The guest is Kevin Allison from The State and from The Risk Podcast. I really enjoyed talking with him. Um, I'm a big fan, and I think you guys will love it too. And I love you. Here's the episode. Hey everyone, hi, hello, it is me, Allison Rosen, and welcome to another episode of Allison Rosen is Your New Best Friend. My guest today is comedian, storyteller, teacher, awesome guy who does a whole bunch of things, creator of the Risk podcast and show, uh, Kevin Allison. Hello. hello. Hey. I, I have to admit, during the beginning of the show when my uh, theme song played, I sort of rocked out a tiny bit and I was about to say, feel free to rock out to you. And then this huge wave of self-consciousness over the fact that I almost <laughs> made you feel weird about the fact that you were not clearly enjoying the song as much as I was. Uh, happened, and then I thought, I'm just going to sit on this. I couldn't help but rock out, but it was all just in my heart. Sometimes that's better. That's better than just going through the motions with the external rock out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It was an interior story of rocking out. Okay, wonderful. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I actually don't like when you're around someone else and they are rocking out and they're looking at you like, what's going on? And you're like, I don't, what, what, what air instrument should I play to accompany you on this journey you're taking? There's a lot of that on the subway. You know, there's yes. a lot of watching people going off into their own worlds. I It makes me feel a little bit more comfortable. When I first moved to New York from Cincinnati, I was so happy that I could walk around talking to myself because <laughs> in Cincinnati, I would get looks doing that. But in New York, I'm like, oh, everyone's just as nuts as I am. Yes, but it, so, and when I first moved to New York, when I would see someone talking to their shoulder, I assumed they were talking to the gnome that lives there. But then at a certain point, it's like, no, they're just talking on their phone. Yeah. Now, how do you know whether someone's truly crazy or they're on their phone minus dreads and like a bird circling their head? It's a good betting game, you know, Bluetooth or crazy. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, <laughs> so before uh, we started, you and I were chatting about risk. And so why don't you tell my listeners who they're probably familiar with it, but in case they're not um, – kind of the genesis of that oh also but i have to say for anyone who hasn't googled and who doesn't who's just been living under a rock you're from the state mtv's yes. the state comedy troupe show which was one of my
my favorites. And, um, you know, I've interviewed Showalter and Michael Ian Black and Carrie Kenny. So. Oh, that's awesome. So I'm yeah. like an honorary member. And they've all been on risk as well. Yeah. The state, we all met at NYU. And we were instant, like almost the day we graduated, we were on MTV. So we were so spoiled. We had no idea that we, we thought we were going to be the Rolling Stones. We were like, <laughs> oh, OK, we're going to be, you know, a, a constant up, up, upward uh, Isn't it funny how here. it seems that way when you have a touch of success <sighs> at a sort of without an immense struggle? Yeah, it, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So it was this is the way it's going to be. As soon as it got tough for us, like, it, you know, there were. It was just we had a we had a Beatles like breakup that lasted like maybe a year and a half. And when we finally did break up, I had always been like the because I was the only gay guy in the group. So I had always been like the black sheep, the loner, the guy in his own universe. And so I wasn't in the cliques that later became like Reno 911 mm-hmm. and Wet Hot American Summer. So I was like, well, what do I do? I should develop a solo career. So I started doing. Can I, was that painful, though, to not be like sort of to feel like you were on the inside of that? Well, you know, I really it, – it, painful, but a lot of it was pain that I brought on myself. I really isolated myself. Being in the state was very scary because it was a pecking order. It was very, very – the rivalry was so strong. Everyone was so eager to get a role or get a script into the show that there was just a lot of like – poking each other down in order to get on top of one another. And I just, you know, I'm just not that good at competition. I tended to be the nice guy who, you know, didn't fare as well in that. And also, you know, like I maybe didn't have so much the facility to like write brilliant sketch after brilliant sketch the way some of those guys could. Who? David Wayne? Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Really? Oh, David. You know, David was an, an amazing example of someone who really adapted because he used to write sketches that would make everyone roll their eyes at how childish and Sesame Streetish they were mm-hmm. until finally he was writing so many of them that everyone in the group was like. This Sesame Street stuff is, is getting really funny. Wow. It was like a, a force of personality. <laughs> yeah. Totally, totally. Yeah. yeah. Who were like the top dogs? Tom Lennon and Ben Garant could just write and write and write. and They could come in with, with five scripts a day and – they were just so natural. They just had such a natural flow of their scripts that uh, oftentimes we would just like green light them the minute we heard them, you mm-hmm. know. So I was always – there lots of jealousy, you know. Um, I mean we loved each other like a family and when I say like a family, I mean – Lots of love and lots of tension. Right. You know, there were nine of you, right? There were 11 oh, of 11. us. Crazy. Oh, my, a ridiculous. See that, yeah, that's just huge. I just can't imagine. I can't imagine 11 people being creative together, but also getting along. You, you know, like you think about how if you've ever been in a relationship that starts to go wrong, just you and another person, how you can sometimes feel helpless. Like, yes. oh, wait, wait, wait. I'm trying to solve this. But when it's 11 people, it you can feel truly helpless. Like there will be things going on. Like when MTV was – they were like, oh, we'd like you back for five more seasons. And we turned them down because we thought, no, 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 no. We should go to the networks. Well, we could have just gone right back to MTV. That was what I was standing for. Did but, you have a sense that you should 
should grab this opportunity while it's in front of you? Yeah, absolutely. We thought that the if we thought we would never really make it unless we hit the big time, like you know, on CBS or ABC or something mm-hmm. like that. And it was just foolish. We were in a place where we could have continued to build and build and build and have creative control. So we really shot ourselves in the foot. And um, I, I remember how helpless I felt when I was like, let's go back to MTV or Comedy Central or something like that. But there was this feeling throughout the group of, no, that would be going backwards. We're feeling bitter. We're feeling jaded. And it just wasn't gelling anymore for mm-hmm. a while there. So, so when the group broke up, I didn't know what to do with myself. So I started getting up on stage and trying to tell stories as crazy, over-the-top sketch comedy characters like, you know, a crazy sailor man or whatever. And they were fun, but I just wasn't like reaching people. Mm -hmm. I wasn't – I think I really got got bored after a while of just being funny, 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 funny. I think I really wanted to like – try other emotions in the work that I was doing. Mm-hmm. Would you, when you would perform as characters, was it like a whole show as one character or would you do a number of characters? I'd in? do like five. I'd do right. like five kooky characters. And then in 2008, like, you know, at this point I've been starving. I've been facing eviction notices. I've been, you know, doing, you know, terrible jobs like Waiting tables and stuff like that. Oh, you went, wow, post. you went back to that. Yeah, yeah. That must have been weird for diners who recognized you. Exactly. And weird for you when that happened. Yeah. I, there, I was, I was uh, serving champagne at the Grammys when Sarah McLaughlin and, um, and Aretha Franklin walked in the room. And they both looked very awkward, like, oh, we're both divas. We should be <laughs> nice to one another or something. So Sarah McLaughlin said, oh, let me get you a drink to Aretha. They came up to the bar and Sarah McLaughlin did what any stupid fan should never do. She looked at me and she was like, oh, what are you doing? Oh, God. I'm researching a role. <laughs> and then she turned to Aretha and she was like, oh, uh, he's a very successful comedian. And Aretha went. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so a lot of moments like that. It's uh, hilarious and demoralizing. Yeah, exactly. So by the time – by 2008, I was just kind of at my wit's end and I did a show called F Up and it was all – it was five characters who were failures, who had destroyed their careers and were kind of at wit's end. But were kind of lovable too, like mm-hmm. kind of like Laurel and Hardy. Like you kind of admire the fact that they keep trying. And so here it was clearly like autobiography. I was clearly trying to tell my own stories only again through kooky characters. And I did it in San Francisco at their sketch fest and it just wasn't working. I wasn't connecting. The audience was kind of like silent. Hmm. And afterwards I saw Michael Ian Black who had been in the audience and I said, what would you think? And he said, Kevin, I think the audience all wanted you to just drop the act and start speaking as yourself. Wow. And I said, well, I feel like I've heard that in the back of my head my whole life. But it's just so risky. And he said, yes, exactly. That's where the good stuff comes from. So in the spirit that the state used to have of 
don't go to school for something. Just keep failing at it in public until you've learned it. (laughs) (laughs) I decided I'm going to create a show and a podcast and I'm going to learn how to tell true stories while I'm making it. Mm -hmm. And I'll just have a deadline that I always have to meet. And so that was risk. And it changed my life. At first, it was mostly stories about uh, pooping your pants or, you know, farting during sex or, you know, most embarrassing moments kind of stories. But over time, we started getting people coming to us like, uh, you know, my sister overdosed and I'd like to tell that story. Or um, I was molested when I was five years old and I want to tell that story. So an episode of Risk can go from wildly like X-rated hilarious to really raw and emotional. And the fans have kind of come to love it for that reason. They feel like this show is so honest in any direction, Mm -hmm. you know? So I've really come to love it for that reason too because when – see, I knew I was gay when I was – tiny when i was a toddler i knew i was like one of my first conscious thoughts was like oh my god i love boys butts yeah i was actually i was going to ask you about that i just heard you telling that story um on stage i was not in the audience but i, I was in the audience of watching it on a computer oh um the story on stage of uh your mom having the figurine of a toddler oh, yeah, yeah and yeah. you sort of being you know enthralled with the hiney yeah, <laughs> yeah. is that the first memory or was it even before That's that my first memory That's yeah, crazy yeah yeah yeah, yeah. And so what happened was by the time I was five, I was conscious enough of what that was and the fact that it was not acceptable. How do you think you had already soaked up that message at five? Well, I don't know. I knew of the word faggot and I knew that it meant lame and disgusting. And I also knew that it was attached to the idea of boys liking boys. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So... I remember being five and thinking to myself, oh, my God, I'm going to be in kindergarten next year. How am I going to keep it a secret that I like boys? You know, someone's going to suss me out eventually. And I remember my first day of kindergarten waiting to get in a single file line to go into our separate classrooms out on the playground. And some boy started making fun of me because he was like, why is your hair orange? (laughs) And another boy Uh, next to him. The honesty of children. (laughs) (laughs) This other boy next to him said, um, oh, no, it's not orange. It's he's red on the head like the dick on a dog. And they started laughing at me. And poetic. (laughs) It's very, it's very touching poetry. But I remember thinking. Oh my God, thank goodness the hair is distracting oh, yeah. them. <laughs> it's a smoke screen. Oh, that's so funny. Like, I can handle that. Who cares about my hair? Right. God. <laughs> You were so like you had so much wisdom and seem seemingly were sort of jaded at five. <laughs> yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. yeah. So there was the reason I'm telling this story is because one of the reasons I never thought that I could get up on stage and be myself was the way I adapted to knowing I was gay as a tiny kid was to be I was like, oh, the, the way I'll deal with this is I've got to be a really good boy. I've got to get like. A's. I've got to be mama's golden boy. I've, you know, adults have to think I'm perfect because 
that was kind of a winning formula because I was afraid that if people found out, I would lose all the people in my life. They would no longer love me, you mm-hmm. know, my family, my friends. So you were trying to like stay ahead of it by currying favor by just being sort of beyond reproach? Yes, exactly. Okay. And then there's this other side of me. I always call it like the Dr. Jekyll, Dr. Hyde, or Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, um, that kind of wanted to come out as being, no, no, I'm really kind of a dirty boy, you mm-hmm. know? And that was comedy. Comedy for me, uh, being the class clown and everything, was my way of letting people know, no, I'm actually kind of weird and freaky mm-hmm. inside, you know? Right. And I, I got so used to it coming out in bursts, you know, like, surprise, I'm also this, that I, by high school, I was known to have an alter ego. They called me, they, they said, there's Kevin and there's Freddy fuck off. Um, <laughs> I'm allowed to curse, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny that this other person, like my friend Paula, turns out, I didn't, I, I used to play in a band with her. I, I don't play in a band currently though uh which is only extraneous because i feel like that's usually the next question but um <laughs> uh but anyway i didn't realize this but the rest of our friends her drunk alter ego is janet they refer to her as janet i was like how did i like janet got naked on a pool table once and i don't know what else happened uh, but how did i miss that i don't know yeah. so anyway i uh, i admire the idea that someone could be so different that that person gets a name yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it kind of sh- shot me in the foot after a while because by the time I got to the state, I, it was I was freshman year in college. I saw this group perform for the first time. Back then, it was called the New Group, and the first show was just um, like the whole audience was just so riled up as if everyone already knew this was a classic. Like, you know, it was kind of like that deja vu kind of thing where you're like, these guys right. are the future. Yeah. So everyone was so excited in the room. And I was Who like, was in it at that point? I think all of the original members or all of the members that ended up on MTV except maybe me and David. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So just the chemistry was extraordinary from the beginning. And I said, I'm going to get in that group. But I knew that there's this side of me that's the polite, kind, Catholic boy from Ohio. And there's a side of me that only comes out in little bursts of, no, I'm a crazy man. So I decided I would start stalking members of the state. It's good, subtle. I, I even... Okay, so Joe Latrulio was – I, I saw him in the hallways of Tisch, of the School of the Arts one day, and I saw that he was going to do a drop ad. Like at, he was waiting in line to go do a drop ad and I was like, I'm going to eavesdrop, find <laughs> out what class he's taking and go right behind him and drop and add that class. <laughs> <laughs> so I did and, and – <laughs> And then in class, I kind of made friends with Joe and then started like, oh, where are you guys hanging out tonight? Mm -hmm. And so I started hanging out with the other members of the state. And there was one night in particular that was kind of a watershed night where they had known me to be kind of shy and what's this guy doing with us? And we were at this bar called The Dugout on 2nd Avenue and everyone was getting very drunk. And I went in the bathroom. There was about an inch of water on the floor and I took off all my clothes and I came out of the bar singing a, an improvised wailing song. <laughs> I remember the first line went, uh, oh, standing in an inch of urine well becomes the sailing man. <laughs> and everyone was instantly like, 
this guy <laughs> is crazy. <laughs> so that was the beginning. That so that was, was like your audition. That was absolutely an audition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so soon after I started working with the group. But unfortunately, I never got that improv principle that you have to commit to the bit and you have to kind of like follow an arc of a scene. Mm-hmm. So I was known as the guy in the group who would do something crazy that made no sense and didn't go anywhere and was very soon over. <laughs> it's just not. I was expecting you to say, but was totally hilarious. So no, oh, you mean like you'd kill the momentum of something? I would, I would like, I'd do something like that. Like, you know, come out singing a crazy wailing song and then not really attach it to a scene or a mm-hmm. character or a, a through line. Right. So I... You know, I was just so used to like coming out with little outbursts of things. And so it wasn't until I discovered storytelling where I was like, oh, you know, in storytelling, you can weave your way through the weirder parts of yourself and the more normal parts of yourself. And you can always conversationally guide people on a tour of your psyche. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Than- As opposed to stand up, let's say, yeah. where it has to be very well well crafted it ha- well stories or, ha- yeah no they're crafted as well stories tighter do, i mean yeah in fact a lot of people really struggle with the crafting of stories there's two things about it two reasons that stand ups find it challenging stand ups rely on their ears they rely on hearing the rolling laughter mm-hmm. In storytelling, there's because it's more reflective of, of how life is, there are going to be sections where there are no laughs. So it's more important for a storyteller to be able to see the audience. Mm-hmm. Um, and another thing is that without those laughs, a person has to be aware that you can't just bail. You know, like a stand-up can be like, oh, this bit is not working. Let's just go to the next bit. Right. But five minutes into a story, you've still got five minutes to go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like you can't just get out of this. Yeah. Well, yeah. is there a way to uh, sort of steer it in a different direction or anything? Like, w- like does it change based on how the audience is reacting? It can. What I always suggest to people is if you're losing people, remember to go back into sensorial stuff like the way something looked, the way something felt inside, thoughts that ran through your head. You you, you have to keep connecting people to the moment by moment of what a felt experience was Mm -hmm. like because people make the, the mistake of doing too much like summarizing of just like this happened and then that happened and then this happened and they forget to go into the personal like right. and I was feeling inside oh my god what am I going to do now you know that mm-hmm. sort of yeah. thing how do you define storytelling I think that it's any incident or series of events that has an emotional through line that kind of starts in one mood or attitude or point of view and then goes through a, a little bit of a journey that changes that attitude or mood, you know, that mm-hmm. uh, it could be as simple as I was happy and then these things happen and then I was happier. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but it's usually not quite that simple. Yeah. Right. And when when people perform stories or I don't know what the uh, actual verb that the appropriate verb is perform a story yeah, I guess sure, yeah sure. is are they reading something or is it usually memorized because I will tell you I was invited to a storytelling night um at, and and I I performed there but at that point I realized I have not really been that 
Like, I did not exactly realize what I was getting into because ev- not everyone else, but a lot of the people up, up there were holding binders. And I'm like, you're not even looking down. Like, I, I was joking to my friend that if they were to look down, if you were to see what's in their binder, I bet it's just their headshot like, or like something <laughs> giving them a thumbs up, you know? I'm like, this is like, they, this, they're so adept at performing this in front of an audience as opposed to me with like my printout of the story that I was going to tell there, which was reading. Yes. Well, the the moth is really the granddaddy of storytelling shows. And it started, I can't, I can never remember if it was 96 or 98, but they established no notes as a mm. rule from the beginning because they felt that it was really important that people be making eye contact and be conversational. Right. But what happened is that the moth will rehearse people on their stories mm-hmm. as much as five times. Wow. They'll have like different producers working with you and all that sort of thing. So like a late night appearance. Yeah, it's like they're, they're, uh, there's kind of a formulaic thing that started happening and a very memorized and writerly sort of thing mm-hmm. that started happening. And I love the moth, but I wanted Risk to be a little bit different. I, I let people know you can have bullet points up there. You can have notes that you can look down in case you get completely lost. And then I tell them another thing you can do if you get lost is say right to the audience, oh, fuck, where where was I? <laughs> <laughs> I've done that many a time. Um, but, yeah, yeah, I, I just feel like it's it should be raw enough and conversational enough that, yeah, you've premeditated it. You've walked through it several times before getting up to do it. But – Memorizing it word for word will hurt it a bit. Mm -hmm. And reading it will hurt it too because reading just doesn't feel the same as conversation does. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean we don't feel – one of the things about risk is there will be people who get up and tell stories and just – lose it like like end up in tears or end up like laughing for a while and being not being able to like bring it back home and that's great you know the actually we have people do risk who have no stage experience mm-hmm. and what the interesting thing is with this art form with storytelling is as long as the audience feels like you are being authentic, as long as they feel like you are telling the truth and kind of revealing some some stuff that's precious to you, they will totally adjust their expectations to the extent to which you're a good performer. You know, they will feel like like oftentimes they'll feel like, oh, you're taking a risk just stepping out on stage. Mm-hmm. You don't even have to tell us all that much <laughs> about, you know, you pooped right. your pants. <laughs> yeah. What is it do you think that makes – people yearn for that that revelatory experience or that authenticity because i know that on this show the more honest i am and the more i reveal these things that i didn't think i would ever be telling people though you know it gets a good response and people are you know nourished for lack of a better word by it yeah it, there's it's like just being because i started a school it's called uh, the story studio and I feel honored listening to people's stories in classes. It makes you feel like more connected to humanity when you feel like – I mean people will tell you stories like where you couldn't relate at all. Like I've had people – I tell so many stories about having sex with Asian dudes. (laughs) Same. And I'll have straight guys, and I like I also in the. Is that what you're into specifically, or you just there's just a preponderance of Asian dudes? You <laughs> no, it's not a pure coincidence. <laughs> there is some design right. in it. Like yeah. I used to always find myself dating guys who had names with one syllable. Like there was a lot of like Jeff, Mike. Oh well, that's odd. Yeah, but, that, that's. But, 
something Sound, yeah, going on but in I the wasn't universe. looking for it right right no no I you definitely for Asian men. I definitely have this as a as a fetish sort of thing and um, but I've had straight guys write in like, I can't believe I'm writing this. I never thought I'd want to hear some gay dude go into such explicit detail about having sex with Asian dudes. But I could really relate to some of the feelings <laughs> that were going on inside Kevin's head. You know what I mean? That sort of That's thing. That's bold. Yeah, absolutely. That's neat. And another neat thing is that it the show has started to shape my life a little bit. Like speaking of that whole that whole issue. Um, uh, about a year ago, I, a guy told a story at a risk show about how he was a- attending an erotic biting workshop. <laughs> His name was Jefferson. And I ran up to him afterwards. I was like, Jefferson, where does one attend an erotic biting yeah. workshop? And he said, oh, I'm going to this kink camp in about three weeks. You should come, Kevin. And I said, oh, I know. I tell all sorts of stories about sex on my show, but I don't know the first thing about BDSM, about like the, the really kinky stuff. Mm-hmm. And he said, oh, Kevin, take a risk. <laughs> <laughs> so he's using the tagline of the show, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, okay. I should lead by example, right? <laughs> So I called the camp and I gave them my credit card information. And when do, I, I mean, like, they're like, do they answer like kink camp? <laughs> how does this it, even? How official is this even? It's very official. There's actually a lot of these. There's actually more of them out here, out west, than there are in the Northeast. Um, but yeah, it, 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 this this camp is actually located at an old Boy Scout camp. <laughs> That's just perfect. <laughs> Yes. That is perfect. I'm sure you've been following like that all the news that's been coming out about how all the pedophilia that goes on in the Boy Scouts. Oh god. Have you been? No. It's yeah, like they sort of have their own internal system for keeping track of um of the scoutmasters or whatever the term is uh who they feel like who they know that they can't they have to fire, but they haven't hadn't been reporting it exactly. You know, so the, the, it, yeah, there's the, like a lot of, of that scandal. same story just plays out again and yeah. again. Like when it's within some sort of institution, for some reason, there's this weird protective thing that starts to happen right. around these people. It's really weird. It is really weird. Um, but anyway, actually, kinksters, these people who attend these camps, what they will profess is, oh. The people who do this sort of like conscious role-playing kind of stuff don't end up being the people who end up acting out like the pedophiles Well, that do. totally makes you know sense I mean? because they're giving themselves permission to you know, do whatever as opposed to trying to, to repress it, I think, where it pops up somewhere yeah, else. Yeah, and they're also like very consciously doing things in a sort of a role-playing mm-hmm. sort of way. You know what I mean? Um, so anyway, I, I, I called the camp after I'd given them my, my credit card and I thought I should really ask them what the demographic <laughs> yeah. is. So I said, are there any gay guys that go to this camp? And the guy who leads the camp was like, oh, no. He's like, it's mostly. <laughs> then you're like, what about Asians? <laughs> you're right. Well, no, there were even All less right. of those. <laughs> He's like, no, it's mostly lesbians and straight people. <laughs> so I was way out of my comfort zone. Um but ended up having like such a – it was like Fellini. It was just like big crazy thing happening here. Someone being lit on fire there. Someone Jeez. being fisted on my porch over here. You know, like pu- there was a thing called the um, clit cleanser. Like what someone, is that? 
a woman gets tied to a table with uh, with her legs up in stirrups and gets a fire hose. <laughs> Oh my God, that sounds more like clipbrasion. Yeah, it's like you've had your orgasm and then it just keeps going. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So, was this all like, was there a schedule though? Mm, mm, mm. There are workshops in the daytime how to tie ropes, how to do tantra, you know. Um, uh, polite etiquette at orgies, you know. Uh, what is polite etiquette at orgies? More and more of these people are for what they call a welcome circle. It, it, it might be in person or it might be on a bulletin board, letting everyone know your STI status, your boundaries, what you won't do. And I think the third one is like your name <laughs> 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 or your nickname. But But what I found there at the camp was – it was kind of a transformative experience for me, even though I didn't have any man-to-man experience there. I realized that, oh my gosh, I really was fascinated by a lot of the dominant and submissive role-playing mm-hmm. and really became interested in like how I might go back into my real life and play around with guys that way. And it really has been an adventure that's opened up for me. And so I realized that, Wow, what are other things that I could start trying that might make good stories? Because the story on risk called um, Kevin Goes to Kink Camp became one of our most popular episodes. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's just got so much crazy stuff happening in it. Yeah. That's crazy. So I think my next thing is uh, I want to have some hallucinogenic adventures. Have you had any? I have, but way back in the day, back in college. It's been so long since I've done anything like that. And I'm like, I would like to do something that was in a kind of a controlled sort of Timothy Leary kind of like, oh, no, no. let's Or like with a hypnotist or something, like go into some really strange mm-hmm. realm. Yeah. Yeah. I've talked about that on here before. I have. I've never done acid or mushrooms. Oh, I've yeah. done other stuff, but I've never done those. I've always been afraid. Um, just I just... Just the idea – well, the idea, with acid, the idea of being altered for that long freaks mm. me out. But then I think also I'm a product of D.A.R.E. Somehow that didn't stop me from doing other things. But I don't know. I'm afraid of like – I think I'm afraid of being out of control in well, that way. That's just it. I mean a lot, of, a lot of the drugs like cocaine or meth or Special K, those things I never liked. I just never felt comfortable on those. Mm-hmm. But mushrooms – the th- the sort of thing where it does feel like you're having a story-worthy experience where all of a sudden you're like, oh, my gosh, I feel like I'm talking to the devil or or, or an angel or something like that. It, you walk away feeling like, oh, wow, I went somewhere, mm-hmm. you know. But you're absolutely right. I mean people just as often have like nightmarish trips as really fun yeah. ones. I know. I saw that episode of Mad Men. Yeah. <laughs> I that. Um so let's see what what there's so many things I want to okay when you started being honest and taking a risk mm-hmm. what was that experience like well you know it was interesting because it came in layers just like the show has kind of gotten more honest as it's gone along when I first started the show I would tell funny stories about sexual experiences that I had in my twenties and then it was about oh a, a year and a half in. I was – see, I had been starving for so many years, not able to pay the rent. 
And a year and a half into the existence of Risk, my husband – I had had a husband of nine years at that point. And he said, look, I know that this project has become your 24-7 like life now. Uh, but there's no income coming in yet and it's not fair to me. He was like, you've either got to get a full-time job or we're over. And I said – I have finally, after 13 years, found something I believe in again, just like the state where I'm like, no, this is really, really worth it and I have to keep investing in it. So I said, I, I just can't. If I got a full-time job, it would be the end of risk. Mm -hmm. And he said, then we're over. Wow. So at that point, I was really freaking out a little bit, feeling like, oh, have I made a mistake uh, still, still really worried about the income. And, you know, I'm sure you know this. People on iTunes will sometimes say mean things about us. I don't <laughs> even know what you mean. <laughs> I have noticed that. <laughs> um, what uh, someone – people will sometimes write in, I love Risk. I love all the stories, but I can't stand Kevin Allison. You know, yeah. would he just shut up? That sort of thing. <laughs> and on this particular day, my feelings were really kind of hurt about that and I was worried about my divorce and I was worried about still not making money at this project. And so I just decided to talk directly to the audience for the first time, just straight into the mic, just like not even telling a story, just like emoting. It was on an episode called Try, and the audience heard for the first time me expressing, look, it's really hard to be doing an indie project like this, and we're struggling, but I'm going to keep at it, so bear with me. And the letters started coming in. And then uh, about a couple weeks later, I went to Provincetown and did a storytelling show there. And had a kind of like a fling, you know, one of those things where you think you're in love overnight. I met this Vietnamese boy and he was 19 and I was 41. Ridiculous. Totally unacceptable. I mean, not unacceptable, but still, you know, not, right. not something you can put stock in. And we had just an amazing, like, romantic evening. And he was a laugher. Like, he, like not many people like laughing during sex, uh -huh. but I do. <laughs> <laughs> So it worked out really nice. And so also, wait, you, you enjoy laughing or you enjoy getting laughs or both? <laughs> a little bit of both. Okay. <laughs> um, and also, I've always had like body issues. Mm -hmm. I've always felt like, oh, I hate my body. And I'm kind of a chubby guy. And You're Actually not, right? I mean, perhaps you tend towards the chubby, but I just, for the person who's hearing this imagining, <laughs> I just want to say, you don't look chubby. In my mind. Okay. Uh, so I'm laying on top of him at one point, and he's like, he just loved it. He was like, yes, put your belly on me. And <laughs> I felt so self-conscious, but then I realized, no, he really likes it. He really likes the extra padding on me. And I was so moved. And then the next day... He just rejected me in the worst way. You know, it, the, like, like the this... iTunes comment. Oh, no, no. <laughs> like, I love your story, but you've got to go. You and your belly got to get out of here. <laughs> no, I saw him the next day at some uh, party and uh, I approached and I started talking to him and a friend gave him a look like, eh, who's oh, this God. old man again? And then he turned to me and he said, eh, why don't you go around and meet someone else? Ugh. And so I was devastated. And when I got back from Provincetown, I don't have a therapist, you know. 
Uh, I've had four therapists and it just never worked. I don't know what it is. Maybe I've just had a bad, bad draw. But anyway, I wanted to get it out of my system. So I decided let's try for the first time telling a story that just happened the other day and that I'm still emotionally raw about. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that story, which uh, Kevin goes to Provincetown or whatever the heck it was called, um, really struck a chord with people because people felt like it was just really, really honest of me to admit that, hey, yes, I'm a 41-year-old who fell in love overnight Mm -hmm. with a 19-year-old, which is insane. And B, that I was able to, like, be so honest about how, I don't know, how, how hard it hit me. And that's when I started to realize that, you know, you can keep going. It, storytelling is kind of infinite. You can keep going deeper and deeper and deeper with stuff. Mm-hmm. And you can tell the same story five years later and realize that you're going to arrive at a totally different ending because you're a different person now. So th- it really fascinates me that I- I've really been affected by the idea of, yeah, let's keep doing things that might be story worthy and live life that way. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting. It makes you wonder, like, which is pushing which? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Maybe it's symbiotic. Um, I mean, I can totally relate to to that story you just told, the, the uh, condensed version of it. And what it brought up for me is just that feeling or, of all the times that I developed feelings for someone and thought that something genuine was happening and then realized like that su- that wake up call of like Jesus this was totally not what it was to them right. how did i not see that yeah. i feel like my entire dating history was not seeing that it probably for me had i realized i mean had i realized this is just this is just messing around this is just sleeping together for this person this is just something that happens it- at nighttime and in the daytime this is not going to be anything yeah. if i had realized that i probably wouldn't have entered into it yeah i think i sort of had to be like missing the signals i don't know but, right uh. or, or or you might have chosen to enter into it but be like oh but i'm totally keeping that you know as my frame of reference mm-hmm. you know that's one of the interesting things about like Uh, the whole BDSM realm or the whole like uh, polyamorous realm because I started having a relationship with a guy shortly after I first went to kink camp and he was like he was a polyamorous sort so he said look you were never going to be a primary partner to me Uh, at most you would be a secondary partner Um, so just know that we're never going to go that far and it was actually liberating to have someone be so blunt yeah. about where we stood. Um, <laughs> not, not that it was <laughs> all rosy feeling. I was going to say, did that give you pause? Because for me, that would I would have to then think, hmm, do uh, can I allow myself to keep going here? Because, but then you know, I obviously would have been having different goals with that situation. I suppose. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, you know. Uh, ever since my marriage broke up, I, my marriage was an open one, um, but there were v- it was very distinct rules in it. And that was I could have sex with other people, but in an almost only anonymous or very casual way. No dating. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so Could you have repeated sex um, with someone else? I, I could, but 
more so in a like a sex party sort of okay. uh, environment than in like, hey, let's keep getting together the mm-hmm. guy down the block. You know what I mean? Right. So, so nine years of being in an open relationship where I could at least have sex with other people, after I got so comfortable with that, I was like, well, I don't feel like I can go go back to the idea of being a an exclusively monogamous person the way we've all been raised to think. Mm-hmm. Um, Had you and your husband ever been? Did you start out as monogamous? We actually – it was interesting. On day one – well, not on day one, but in the first few weeks of our relationship, we decided we are officially open. But we didn't act on it for about a year and a half. For about a year and a half, we were exclusively mm-hmm. monogamous. We just had this – like, I don't know. In theory, we're open. And then a year and a half, we checked in like, hey, where, where, where are we at with that open thing? <laughs> we were like, oh, yeah, we're still open. All right, let's actually start acting on it. And yeah. did that work smoothly? It did, actually. I'm a big, big, big into honesty. You know, I mean, I always feel safer if as long as we're talking about things before and after, you know, at least to some extent, I mean, I don't need to hear all the details. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. There's that question of how much do you want to know? Right, right, right. Especially emotionally. Yeah. 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 And, yeah. and I find that you realize that you heard too much when it hurts. Mm, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. more of an – yeah, it's like an emotional sort of – sense of that map i think that some people are more just monogamously like i don't know there's something in their psychology that just makes them more monogamous and other people more tend toward the polyamorous sort of thing Mm -hmm. um my view of it like i remember in high school we were taught this idea because i went to a jesuit high school and they taught us this idea of the word that jesus used for love was agape meaning uh a kind of a love that was totally open and accepting and uh, generous. And what we were taught was love is not like a pie where you only have so many slices, but it's like a fire where you share it with this person and it might catch on there. You share it with that person. It might not catch on so much, but you've got as much, you know, you've you've got an endless supply. Right. And they certainly did not mean yeah, I'm sure they didn't expect sex. this application. <laughs> <laughs> but I actually personally kind of do feel that way, that intimate moments that I share with one person do not necessarily uh, dissipate or destroy or or whatever intimate moments that I might share with someone else. Mm-hmm. That's just me. You know what I mean? And I, and I understand. Like in the kink community, they say, don't date outside our species. <laughs> what does that mean? Don't be with someone who's got a stick up their ass, but they who didn't want it there. Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. No, no. Like to feel people out when you meet them and find out how kinky are you? How monogamous are you? How compatible are we ultimately with these things? Mm-hmm. Because it's just as unfair for someone who's more polyamorous to get themselves into a situation where, oh, wait a minute, I've, I really am not designed for this. You know, it's unfair to, on both sides. Yeah. So do you consider yourself a member of the kink community now? I do. I do. <laughs> I do. I've been back to kink camp and I'm like re- – Do you see the same people? Yeah, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. And the weird thing is you see people who are like really like – well-established professionals. You'll see people who are like, 
really like have important jobs in like Washington or on or even on like TV or um is there a code of anonymity Absolutely there's no pictures to be taken everyone has a nickname all that kind of thing yeah do do we get to know what your nickname is or is even that a secret um, my nickname in the scene is red kev <laughs> <laughs> because i thought that it would be easy to you know remember my hair but then what happens is because i talk about stuff so much on risk mm-hmm. i i've become a little bit known a little bit in some circles of the kink community so anyone with red hair will be approached and be like oh you're red kev <laughs> That's funny. And they're totally cool with you telling stories about it. As long as I don't reveal people's identities or other identifying details. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Now, so are you mostly an observer at kink camp, though? If it mostly cater or if many people who go there are lesbians and I forget what the other types of people are. Mostly. Mostly I have been an observer and I'm looking for. for, Like you're auditing? (laughs) Well, there's a little bit of tasting and exploring that happens along the way. But I mostly observe, yeah, and learn from the workshops and stuff like that. And I'm looking for more of this kind of stuff in the gay community. It's funny because I I feel a little bit at odds with where gayness is now because when I was in my 20s, there was Act Up and the Radical Fairies, and there was just this sense of... I am not familiar with the Radical Fairies. Oh, the Radical Fairies are just like gay guys who love dressing up in just totally weird, uh, you know, uh, like dressing up like fairies and whatnot and going Mm -hmm. out and tripping on mushrooms in the woods and being uh, pansexual crazy people. I feel like we've all been warned against them. (laughs) (laughs) warned about them. (laughs) So... I always felt in my 20s like I was a part of this community that was pushing the envelope, that was like, you know, for the sake of our, you know, saving our lives and every and just just standing up for being who you are, that we were, you know, on the cutting edge. And nowadays I feel like being gay means watching Glee <laughs> and getting married, you know, so I don't relate to it anymore. And and this kink community that now exists and it's a big deal like online. There's like like FetLife is the Facebook for kinksters mm-hmm. and there's just people all over the world uh, and they get together at these retreats or workshops or camps and stuff like that. Um But, yeah, the gay community had been doing – the gay male community had been doing this for so long back into the 20th century. But it was all underground. And it was usually like mentor to mentee. You know what I mean? So now I'm looking for, you know, how to connect with members of my own tribe who who know about this stuff. Is there – a pervasive theory or what are the thoughts sort of in the community on why certain people are into kink? Well, you know, it's really interesting because the whole one of the philosophies of of the kink community is everyone's kink is okay as long as they're not harming anyone, right? So accept everyone for like be they trans or you know, I mean, you don't see – you would never see at like kink camp or something like that people shitting on each other or anything like that. There are things that Somewhere are like – Somewhere Jim Norton is going, damn it. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> like uh, that is out there, but it's still a little bit beyond like, – yeah, yeah, scat camp. Yeah. Yeah. You've got to go to a special scat camp for that. Um, but no, the – 
as far as everyone, everyone's got their reasons for doing it. There are some people who have really psychologically bizarre or, or like at first brow-raising reasons for doing it. Um, the first thing that comes to mind is victims of rape or child molestation who like to have scenes, role-play scenes, wherein they go into that sort of scenario again, but now they know they have some control over it because they have an established trust with the person they're playing with. Mm-hmm. They have a safe word, et cetera, et cetera. Um, some people really, even in the kink community, really raise their eyebrows at that. Like, it feels like you're picking at a wound and might be going into you know dangerous emotional territory. Mm-hmm. But I think most people's kinks do come from some place in their childhood and you know there's there's bound to be slightly traumatic incidents in one way or another that come into some of the things that turn you on um but other things are just like a little bit harder to explain like my thing for asian guys is like i don't know what that's about (laughs) and how far back does that go well and was your husband asian Yes, he was Filipino. I do remember seeing The King and I when I was uh, eight years old. And and the weird thing about it was I went with Sarah Jessica Parker, <laughs> which was the one and only time I've ever seen that woman. Uh, what happened was the next door neighbor, Betsy – oh, I don't want to name people. Anyway, my next door neighbor was Friends with Sarah Jessica Parker and the next door neighbor girl got sick and her mom was like, oh, we've got these two tickets to go see this high school production <laughs> of The King and I. I'll take Sarah and Kevin. So I'm like, she's like, hi. And the only reason I remember who she is is because, oh, she's got three names. <laughs> <laughs> How old were you guys at this point? Uh, I was probably like eight and she was probably like 11 or 12. And... We go to see the play, and it's all these – well, because it's Cincinnati. I mean, we really don't have any Thai people. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's, it's Filipino Catholics. And, you know, the king is not bald. He's, he's a beautiful, like, 17-year-old boy, right? And at one point, he does break out a whip. You know, he, he lays down the law. Mm-hmm. And I remember this twinge of – Wow, <laughs> he looks really impressive doing that. <laughs> Not the takeaway you're supposed to get right. out of that scene. Um, <laughs> and then I remember like The Last Emperor, you know, just stuff like that. These cultural touchstones from from my and mostly like movies and plays and stuff like that. Because I grew up in Cincinnati is one of those white flight kind of mm-hmm. places. The neighborhood I grew up in. Is now no one I grew up with lives there anymore because the black people started right. moving in. So it's it's a it's a really kind of ghetto you know or segregated sort of a part of the states. And so I grew up mostly around white people. And I think when I moved to New York, that's when I really began like being like, oh, I like people of different skin colors, you know, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. And were you raised Catholic? Very, very. I was raised very Catholic. My parents were were liberal Democrats. So on social issues, they really, you know, were cool, but they were still very devout about Catholicism. They were kind of, of, you know, like my dad marched 
not with Dr. King, but with Dr. King's people and would, you know, volunteer for, you know, I don't know, peaceful, like against the Vietnam War and stuff like that. But they were still 19. They weren't they weren't hippies. Mm -hmm. They were still 1950s kind of Aussie and Harriet at heart. Um, So it was I and my mom was just very has a puritanical streak. Mm -hmm. I remember when I was 14, she sat us down, my sister and I, and sexual healing had been playing by Marvin Gaye on the radio. And she said, never, ever are we, are you allowed to play this song in this house? If it comes on the radio, the radio goes off. And I remember at that moment thinking, I am not going to be able to come out to her (laughs) for several more years, at least. (laughs) And, And when did you? I came out to my folks when I was 18, and really, by that time, it felt like, finally, you know what I mean? But I did it. Had it, you dated men uh, before that at all? Not really. I, I, I didn't do any dating. Until, in fact, I really did, never had a long-term partner until 2001, until I was 31 years old. Mm-hmm. So my experience of, of – maybe that may be one of the reasons I feel like a kind of a polyamorous person is because I've spent so much of my life just dallying with people. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Not going really far and deep with someone. So – and there is, of course, a part of me that really does want that. Um, I forget. What was the question? <laughs> the question was uh, how did it go when you came out? No, no, no. Oh. Well, I was I – was, you were going to – uh, talk about when you came out, but I was asking if you had uh, dated men before that or anything. No, no. And it it was just that I was starting to come out to some of my friends in high school and I was, I don't know, just starting to express things around the house where I think they were starting to be able to tell that I was, something was going on with me. So when I came out, I literally talk about, you know, storytelling before, like using a script, I wrote out a speech <laughs> on index cards <laughs> and I sat my mom and dad down on the, uh, the, the screened in porch and I just read off of the cards, just turning one after another, never looked up at them. And then I had questions and answers at the end, like, here are questions you might have and the answers oh, to them. Oh, that's so smart. <laughs> how, how did it go? My mom cried and kept crying and she just said uh, that she had no idea, which was really, really weird because she she had been showing all these signs of suspecting. There's this – Like what? Well – she had been asking me for like the past year if I was dating my friend Meg. She'd be, Are you dating Meg? No. Are you dating Meg? No, no. And and I got to the point where I would get so irritated at what was clearly going on that I would yell at her, you know. And she also found like a stack of pictures of Kirk Cameron under my mattress <laughs> from like Teen Beat. You're only human. <laughs> I mean, this this was right. Back- this is before he was fire and brimstone, Kirk Cameron. Exactly, and before I uh, and when I was still into white boys. Oh, right. <laughs> right. Um, but uh, <laughs> uh, but my father had actually asked me. My father was always on this kind of thing, much more chill. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had asked me when I was a sophomore, he had taken me out for a milkshake and he had noticed that I was friends with this other kid who was very, you know, queeny. He took me out for a milkshake and he said, um, you know, a lot of the men I admire in history 
<laughs> were kind of different when it came to relationships. He was like like Michelangelo and Leonardo and I he just kept listing people and I was like, "Oh no, what do all these men have in common?" And he asked me if I felt different about relationships and I said, "No." And so when I came out at 18, he was like, "I asked you." Like he was hurt. And I said, "Oh, but Dan, I just you a kid needs to be able to say it in his own time when it's when he wants to. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. It's just you just if someone catches you off guard, you just don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. And so your mom cried and cried. Did I mean I assume obviously she came around. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Both my mom and dad are very cool about it, but they don't really know they've never heard risk they've never heard the podcast and i th- they know I, they don't quite understand what a podcast is they're you know they're in their mid 70s and they're just not very savvy with the computer kind of stuff so they've read articles where they know that kevin allison tells stories that can get rather raw and r rated uh, but they don't know the fine details. And I think that they are very conscious about not wanting to learn more. You know What they do know, they do know also that people have taken my classes or heard the show and felt like it really helped them. You know, like those stories of like we were talking about before, the more serious stories where people got something very therapeutic out of it. So they love that. And they love the fact that I've kind of found this thing that the nice thing about storytelling is it's it's something that is never not going to be needed. You know what I mean? It's something that people will always be interested in. So the fact that I've started a school for it, they're, they're, they're able to get behind it. But no, they have not heard risk. I don't think they could handle it. Um, and how does the school work? Uh, the school, there's basically three kinds of people that come to us. One is people who are writers or performers who want to do shows like Risk and The Moth. Two, people who are just you mean like... the competition? Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> um, the second kind are like people who are just like, you know, shy. Maybe like someone in their life has been like, hey, you need to loosen oh, right. up a little bit, you know? And the third type are people who want this for a career reason, for like job interviews, you know, how to be charming with a client over lunch, or literally how to do a business presentation story. Oh, so that's for interesting. Those... I see. I've I've actually thought, even though most of, not most of my life, but a large chunk of my life right now is being on air and telling stories and and being myself on air, et cetera. Um, whenever I'm in a general meeting and they're like, you know, so where'd you go? Tell me your story or whatever. I sort of hem and haw is too strong, but I still don't have that whole thing nailed down into a compelling narrative. And I thought, I know I'm going to be asked that. I'm asked that all the time. Why don't I just work on that? And yet I should go to your class. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is, it is the sort of thing you have to think through because the difference between storytelling for business and the other kind is the other kind you're just like you start from well what are the moments in my life that were really really emotional when was I super angry when was I super excited that sort of thing business you go you start at the end you're like well what point do I want to arrive at Mm -hmm. what's the moral of the story and then you try to think of some experience you've been through that illustrates that so yeah, that's that's and also story stories for business have to be really succinct. 
you can't. You can't right. take 10 minutes. <laughs> yeah. So so we have special workshops for, you know, like one-day workshops for business people and customized ones for specific teams. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and what was it like in the state being the one gay member? You know, that also – it is like – remember when I said I felt like I had heard in the back of my head I should be telling true stories all my life? That actually started in the state because at MTV, we had check-in every morning. Because, because the state had this kind of roasting style of humor where we would kind of pick on one another, uh, we decided at one point we should start the day with a half hour of everyone just, just letting out where we are emotionally, right? Whose idea was that? I don't know. It probably wasn't mine because no one ever listened to me. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, we would get around in a circle and everyone else had been hanging out the last night. You know what I mean? Because everyone else in the state was their entire social Mm -hmm. life too. But I was the gay guy who was going out and, you know, like my night would have ended in a sub-basement in the (laughs) meatpacking district. (laughs) There might be a legless guy in the corner, (laughs) a drag queen, you know, under me. Um, so I would tell these stories every day where people were just like, Kevin is always the highlight of check-ins. <laughs> um, so I think that, yeah, like, but, but that was the sort of thing where I didn't feel like I could show that side of myself, say, to the staff or to mm-hmm. the MTV executives or anything like that. So the, that's an example of how I always felt this need to kind of come out. Um, and that I feel like, you know, another thing is that puritanical streak in my mom. I feel like risk is largely a reaction to that. Um, I once heard George Carlin say he was so thankful that he had been raised Catholic because his parents were actually cool. They were actually you know, easy to get along with. So he's like, so here was this thing that was crazy (laughs) that I could react against, rebel against, and forge an identity. Mm -hmm. Uh, And now I feel in retrospect, I spent so many years kind of like harboring resentment toward my mom for being so puritanical when I was a kid and shaming me about sexual stuff. And now I feel like, oh, no, risk is largely me finally, even though my mom is still alive and I still love her and everything like that, finally rebelling against that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, But being the only gay member in the state was difficult because there were so many guys in the group. There were there were 10 guys, one girl. And all the guys had grown up in high school being called theater fags, even though they were straight. So they had they had that extra layer of feeling like they had to prove they were straight. Mm-hmm. So there there was a lot of joking a joking about gay people that would happen, but but there was also a lot of joking about Jews that would happen right in front of David's face or Italians that would happen in front of Ken's face or women that would happen in front of Carrie's face. So Everyone just kind of understood that, yeah, we make jokes, but it's ultimately in love. And, and you know, there were days when that was true and there were days when it wasn't. You know, there were some jokes people would make where you would be like, oh, wow, you just calling me a fag now really felt kind of sincere at the bottom. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it was definitely – it was definitely weird at times to to be the only gay member, um, you know. But 
at the same time, it kind of distinguished me as well, Mm -hmm. you know? Was it fun being in the state? It was a ton of fun. We did a ton of laughing together. And I think that that's one of the reasons the period after the state, like, I I don't think I put two and two together after the state, but the fact that we spent so much time laughing together and then it wasn't there anymore made life extra difficult. I think at the time it was going on, I was so focused on, oh, we're all so competitive. We're also, you know. Was uh, was that something that everyone in the group felt? Like, was it acknowledged that you're all competitive? Definitely. Okay. Definitely. Everyone felt like, oh, gosh, we can be so rough to one another. Um, but at the same time, there was just this like, we were always just ama- kind of in love with each other at, at the way we could laugh together. Mm-hmm. I remember one time we went to Ken Marino's family's cabin um, down somewhere in rural Pennsylvania. And we, we were doing shrooming and all that kind of stuff and having a blast and, and always, always thinking up scenarios to turn into sketches. And at one point we were like, oh, we're tired of cooking by the campfire. Let's go find a restaurant. So we drove out into rural Pennsylvania searching and searching and searching for a restaurant. We finally find one. takes about an hour and a half for them to get the food to us. And when they get the food to us, it's awful. (laughs) So we all get into this van afterwards. And Tom Lennon started it. Once he got into the van, just started screaming like, ah! And the rest of the group just immediately joined in. And for the, like, (laughs) half hour or, you know, 40 minutes it took to drive home, that scream never stopped. It was just this weird, like, almost religious experience of group mind happening. And I'll never forget that as just, like, the way that the group had this connection to one another Mm -hmm. so yeah there was there was a lot of we had a lot of fun and i think that i think that when we 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 had a couple of reunion shows one at ucb several years back and then another at san francisco sketch fest a few years back and it was just instantly so much fun again and the audience members were like oh my gosh don't you guys realize that when the 11 of you get together there's nothing quite like it and we do realize that, I think, but we've all got our separate careers now, and it's just so hard. And we also know, I think, that if we did start working on a project together again, all that tension would come back as well. You know yeah. what I mean? All that like familial, like, you drive me crazy. You right. know? <laughs> are you, who are you still in touch with slash friends with now? I'm friends with everybody. The, in fact, the group still jokes around with each other at, at, via an, a never-ending uh, all-group reply-all email. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's fun. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And who, like, who, who was, if there was a top dog or a, f- a few, who was sort of at the center? Well, you know, it's interesting. Like, different people had different roles. Like, um, uh, like Mike Jan was just a film director. He was kind of like the Terry Gilliam of the group mm-hmm. because he didn't really do all that much acting. But he did wield a certain amount of power in that he could, you know, say, well, I really want to make a, a, a remote video out of this piece as opposed to that one. Um, like I said, Tom and Ben and Showalter and David... Um, and Black did a heck of a lot of writing, you know. 
Um, Carrie was very, very adept at working with anybody and very adept at coming up with new characters, too. So she was like Wonder Woman. You know, she got that thing. She was one. She was good at playing with the boys. You know, when jokes were made about women, it was kind of like water off her back or she would just shoot something back that made everyone feel stupid. (laughs) (laughs) Um but yeah, she she was amazingly adept at like uh, trying on new things, writing with other people because she wasn't one of one of the things that really helped is if you could both write stuff with other people and write great stuff on your own too. Mm-hmm. I was usually someone who could only write stuff on my own, and I did write a lot of sketches that are still remembered and all that sort of thing. But I would spend so – I was such a perfectionist. I would take, you know, a week to write one sketch. Whereas, whereas you know, like I was saying, like Ben and Tom would come in like daily with five. Right. So, yeah. It was just um, – but that's the thing about a group is that everyone's got strengths and weaknesses. And, you know, like those people were saying, there's nothing quite like it when the 11 of you are together. That's because it's a particular mix of psychologies. You know what I mean? That, you know, some people are on creative teams just because they're really good at laughing and observing and giving feedback, mm-hmm. you know? So, yeah, it, um, it, it's – I think we all still remember a ton of things about it that are, that are just very precious to us as we look back. And I think that – there is the possibility that we'll work on something. I, I pitched to the group a few years ago, what about an animated show? Because we wouldn't have to be in, in the same cities. Uh, we could be on various schedules. You know, that's the main thing that, that makes the idea of working together again kind of impossible. Right. Um, what was the reception to that idea? Everyone liked that idea, but then there's, okay, who's going to put forth all the effort <laughs> right. to make that happen? You're like, I came up with the idea. <laughs> right. Run, Run with, with it, it someone. Yeah. <laughs> all right. I think it's time for some Just Me or Everyone. And this is where people tweet things they do or think that it makes them wonder, is it just me or is it everyone? And we have a little song. Sometimes I ponder on something. All right. I actually have one of my own, which is that when I see someone walking a big dog and the dog has big balls, I I assume (laughs) the person is kind of just an inconsiderate person. (laughs) For having a big bald dog. Yeah. Well, for having it for not having neutered their giant dog. And I think that this is someone who wants other people to think that they're tough because they have, like, the stallion version of a dog. That being said, I am also uncomfortable with the idea of neutering and spaying animals, even though I realize it's more humane and I'm in favor of it. But I feel like – but a little bit, I feel like, really, more humane? We're cutting off their balls or removing their uterus. Like, how is that – what it's obviously not what the animal would want, you know. What right. I mean? Like I don't know. Like I'm I'm uncomfortable with that whole thing, even though I realize it's sort of the what has to happen. Yeah. Well, I think the main thing is it just gets such a visceral reaction out of you to see something walking around with big balls. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they 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 do look like human balls. You they know? really do. <laughs> yeah. I was trying to come up with a tweet. I was like, you know, when I see someone walking around with a dog. 
with big balls, I think they're kind of inconsiderate and possibly Michael Vick, but I'm also super turned on. But then, like, I, it is a joke, but I couldn't get it right, so I just thought, I'll just bring it up on the show and explain that when I see someone who hasn't neutered their dog, I think, what are you doing? Um, okay, Gag66 says, I find it super disturbing when people answer cell phone calls not only in the bathroom, but when actually on the toilet. Um, trying to, so now we say whether we find that disturbing or not. Um, I, uh, it's more like I, I am envious that the person is so confident that they can conduct their business while conducting their business. Well, I usually, I, I, it depends on who I'm talking to. If it's a friend, I will deliberately put the phone toward the toilet so that it, so that the echoing of my urine going into the bowl is louder just to be like, you know, you know what that was? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I've definitely been talking to someone and I've I've used the bathroom while I'm talking to them. Not a public restroom, though. But I've tried to, like, if you can urinate in a super quiet way, I've tried to do that. And I've right. thought, who am I fooling? Right. <laughs> um, okay. Jonathan Vance, I greatly prefer tater tots to french fries. Um, I see the I see the role of each. I don't know that I have a preference. I don't like steak fries, though. It's too much yeah, potato. I agree. I agree. They're so dry. Yeah. Yeah. Gary, steak oh, fries? Oh, I'm totally with you. No. Who wants steak fries? There's probably, there's someone out there who wants them. Who is that person? I don't know. But in order to get a steak fry to taste properly in the middle, I feel like you have to burn the outside of it. Yeah. yeah it just There's always something wrong. The, the surface area to potato ratio, wrong. Okay. F this ish says, is it just me? I pick up my cup and there is nothing left in it. If there are people around, I still take a drink. I feel like I've done that before. I do that all yes. the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's the thing. Like, when you're out socially, like, having a drink is just the most – I don't even drink anymore. But having something in your hand is just yes. so comfortable and that, you know, you're like, oh, I can act like I'm for – Two for like two halves of a second. That would be a, a second. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm going to be <laughs> acting like I'm drinking this. Uh, it gives me something to do. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So you don't drink at all? Yeah, no. Just just the marijuana now, and uh, soon the Timothy Leary sorts of experiments. How come no alcohol? You know, it's weird. I quit three times with AA. And and then I just finally got around to saying that didn't it just doesn't work for me to sit around in a group where everyone's just telling stories about drinking. Uh, maybe it would be easier for me just to do it on my own. And it did. It, it, it really did work for me. Like it was out of sight, out of mind once I did it on my mm-hmm. own. The, for me, I was never the type who was going to wreck a car or lose a job or lose a marriage or anything over it. It was just I'd usually have a few too many. You know what I mean? If I had one, I'd have a few too many. And so I was like, yeah, it leaves me too groggy. And I know that I can handle pot. I know that if I have a puff of pot, I'm not going to have to have another one mm-hmm. in, in 15 minutes. Yeah. Do you think that you are or are an alcoholic or were? Like, did that terminology work for you? I well, you know what's interesting is that people in AA would say there's no such thing as being a little bit of an alcoholic. That's like saying I'm a little bit pregnant. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then they'd say, 
oh, someone like you, Kevin, are a high bottom drunk, meaning that you are not the kind of person who's going to end up living in the gutter if you start drinking oh, again. Like you, you bottom out. Your at bottom a high will level. be kind of yeah, dealable, withable in society. And so I think that that what, what they're ultimately saying is, yeah, there is something as being a little bit alcoholic. <laughs> right. <laughs> so right. I feel, I, I've I've always been uncomfortable with saying, oh, I'm an alcoholic. I think maybe just like uh, problem drinker or something like yeah. that. Just someone who would doesn't gets a little too carried away. See, yeah. that's sort of I think what I was or slash am or whatever. Like I um I just felt like I drank too much. And, but nothing really bad happened that other people would think is bad, but I would be angry at myself. Mm. Oh, first, it, it became that I would just be angry at myself over the fact that I had drank too much, not over what I had done while drunk. But you know, yeah. I just wanted to not drink as much. Mm-hmm. And I did. I went to meetings. I didn't do the steps. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's funny, as I say that, I hear judgment from the people in those rooms right, even right, right. Th- that I'm imagining, but not. Um, but it helped me to hear other people dealing with, you know, basically compulsive behavior. But I, as much as I was trying to focus on the similarities, there were a lot of things personality-wise that were different between me and, like, the the sort of majority of the stuff I was hearing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, yeah, yeah. I, I totally agree. Yeah. Yeah, and there are a lot. Well, and, I'm, like, I could have a drink now and nothing bad would happen. Oh, I just, is that right? Yeah, but I don't. I wouldn't want to, really. Yeah, well, I totally do the whole... Well, I actually have. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I recently had a beer that I thought was non-alcoholic. I asked for a non-alcoholic beer, had it, realized, oh, that had alcohol in it, and nothing... Mm-hmm. happened i was like oh i just had that and you know went back to not drinking right. and i you know use listerine you know like when people would say oh no no you can't possibly use listerine i'd be like okay i'm not there you know yeah. <laughs> right right um okay let's see uh oh bryant rich says when i jog if i stop to walk and another runner <clears throat> sees me i want to shout i was running a second ago or inter- interval training <laughs> um I I totally get that in a sort of a different way, which is that if I'm eating something decadent in public, I want to be like, no, you don't understand. I've been dieting really well <laughs> for the rest of the day. <laughs> so, um, okay. Russ White says, when the person in front of me can't find their ATM cash license, et cetera, I feel the need that I must touch my own. I don't have that, but I, but I like it. Yeah, no, I don't have that either. Yeah. All right. Uh, Charlie, Charlie Agu says, if I have to use a public bathroom, I never use the first 12 inches of toilet paper hanging off the roll. I Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. It depends. If it's touching the ground, I, I'm going to have to rip that oh, off. Oh, yeah, of course, of course. Yeah, no, that doesn't occur to me either. All right, question. <laughs> question for, for everyone in this room and Gary. Do you always use those toilet seat covers? Because I feel like, who are we kidding? Whatever it is can travel through that thin piece of porous paper, that yeah. membrane. No, I'm with you. And it's so awkward to put down. Like, yeah. you're like, oh, well, if I just, is this going to stay there while I'm in the we process of sitting? You have to make sure not sitting? to create a draft as you're on your way to sit exactly. on it. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And, and then also the flap, the tongue of it. Like, does it go in the front or the back? I've seen it done both ways. And then there, but there have been times where the toilet seat is especially disgusting. So and they won't have toilet seat covers. So I'll lay down the toilet paper, and yeah. but that it, you really a wind could come. 
Yeah. Yeah, even worse. And, so. Yeah, it's going to... Okay. Uh, Mrs. Jones 949, my favorite part in a, and a, of... My, sorry. My favorite part of an award show is the In Memoriam. Not I. When I was watching the Emmys last night, I... Uh, I I got a little emotional. I get too sad watching the in memoriams. So it's not my favorite part, you dark weirdo. I I love the I love all the montages because I don't know, it the, the, it's the part of well, I'm thinking of the Oscars especially because those are the parts of the ceremony where you're really reminded, "Oh yeah, some good stuff does come out of the film industry." Like <laughs> two decades ago. <laughs> <laughs> so true. Uh I thought that the I was watching the Emmys last night too, and I got a little choked up that they put Patrice in there. I thought yeah. that was really nice. It seemed weird because he wasn't primarily right. a TV wasn't his primary medium, but I was really I thought it was really classy that they did that. Oh, that's yeah. fabulous. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Leaf Eater says, "Just mirror everyone. Hold the water fountain for a few seconds before taking a sip." I think that's everyone. Sure. You got to start it going. Yeah. Yeah. It's like entering a double dutch jump rope or something. I yep, always it think it's go. going to be rusty water at first. Yes. Yeah. Not only that, you don't know, is it going to shoot up or is it going to just go out a tiny bit? You need to know what angle to approach it at. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I totally agree. It's definitely the angle is the reason that I hold it yeah. is to make sure that I'm – because I've – have you ever made the mistake where you misjudge it and just end up squirting water all over your eye or something? No, but I did one time try to squeeze ketchup directly onto the turkey dog and it went like – it arced over it and then hit my hip and leg in the floor, <laughs> which was not what I had intended. Now, Gary, Gary and I grew up in the same town. Mm. Uh, we didn't know each other then. When you were going to school, if there was a line for the water fountain, this is a question for you as well, would people say one, two, three, water hog? Yes. No. Okay. <laughs> Absolutely. I, mean, it's an I still think that yeah. when I see people, multiple people at a water fountain. But I like that there's a count. Yeah. But it was never. You it was don't start never, as a water hog. But it was never a reasonable. It was always one, two, three, water hog. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. so it was a very quick right. progression. Like with the jinx, and this is also regional. But where, but the way I learned it was one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Jinx, not jinx. You owe me a coke. It was mm. just jinx. And then um, you couldn't speak until the person said your name. In which case, the curse of silence transferred onto them. But I think if you did speak, they could hit you or something. But it would just turn into jinx. You could not – there was no discernible numbers being said in there. Okay. Um, let's see. Oh, Leaf Eater also has this one. Just mirror everyone. I place a roll of toilet paper in the freezer before eating a spicy meal. I've never thought of doing that. That is uh, very creative. Would that help? I don't know. Why do you want your toilet paper cold? Oh, 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 to cool you <laughs> off. Yeah. <laughs> no, this is very peculiar. Leaf eater. No, that's definitely never occurred to me, but I laughed quite a bit when I saw that one. Yeah. And then I feel like I've also heard of people putting their underwear in the freezer for a sweltering summer day. (laughs) I've never done that either. (laughs) I've never really done anything weird with putting things in the freezer for, for later use. I once put like a cup of urine in the freezer for some sort of prank. But I forget what the prank was. Like, I forget what the intention of it was. And then my dad went into the freezer, (laughs) knocked it over, and I realized, oh, no, we've just got a lot of urine all over the freezer now. But cold urine. Yeah. Yeah. 
So what did you do? Just clean out the freezer really well? Yeah, yeah. When I realized that it happened. I think I think he alerted me. He was like, there's something strange in the freezer. <laughs> I, think, I think it's you. <laughs> uh, I just moved. And um, I was, I've been going back and forth between uh, my old place and the new place. And my old place, as I was approaching the front door, I was like, smells very strongly of urine here. It made me really miss it. Not really. But I'm wondering, <laughs> did someone's big bald dog take mm. a whiz? I, does dog urine smell distinctly like human urine? And or did a human take a whiz there? Does it smell extra strong if it comes from a big bald dog? Oh, that's a good question. Mm-hmm. I would assume it does. Mm-hmm. I would assume there's other hormones you know, that a, your neutered dog wouldn't have. Mm-hmm. I don't know. But my point is, who's pissing on my old front stoop? I think we can just go. Oh, <laughs> it's Gary. Sorry, sorry. I, I just I couldn't get in fast enough to get, use the bathroom. My bad. It's okay. I understand. All right. Um, well, gosh, thank you so much, Kevin Allison, for doing this show. This has been delightful. Thank you. Now, something that uh, I wanted to ask: you are do you have the show in New York and you have it in L.A. And now, do you tour? Like, tell tell us where we can find this and. You can find out anything you want to know about Risk at risk-show.com. Yeah, we have monthly shows at The Pit in New York and Nerd Melt in Los Angeles, and we do tour with the show, too. Okay, and Kumail Nanjiani and Pete Holmes host it in In L.A. In L.A., that's right, and I host it in New York. Now, how did they get hooked up with being the L.A. representatives of it? Just because they're friends of mine, and they when they moved out here, I was like, oh, my gosh, you guys should do it. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Um, and then the storystudio.org is where you can find out information. Because we do, like, one-on-one training over Skype. We do all sorts of storytelling training. Cool. And are you on Twitter? Yes. On Twitter, I'm at the Kevin Allison or at Risk Show. Okay. And anything else we should know about or look for or that you want to plug? Uh, well, Risk is joining MaximumFun.org. Oh, cool. Yeah, that whole network of yeah. Jesse Thorne shows. Right. Yeah, yeah. Oh, very cool. So you can find us there, too. Neat. Um, h- how come? Well, you know, after we just thought it would be nice to be in a little bit of a family. And their shows are kind of like – they have a kind of like uh, a – I don't know, a, a level of quality and also a level of – oh, I don't know. I don't know. We just felt like it was a nice family to join. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, congrats. When does that start? Uh, That starts in October. Very nice. All right. Well, thank you again. This has been very very fun. And I want to thank um, the listeners. You can follow me on Twitter at Allison Rosen. You can follow the show's Twitter feed at A-R-I-Y-N-B-F. If you want to email me, it's A-R-I-Y-N-B-F at AdamCarolla.com. You can follow Gary on Twitter at G. Patrick Smith. Um, there was, oh, oh, let's say you're going to buy something on Amazon, like perhaps a new welcome mat because someone or their giant dog with giant balls urinated on it, um, you're probably going to go want to go to Amazon because they have everything. Uh, why not click through the banner on my website at alisonrosen.com. It doesn't cost you anything extra, but it does help the show. Um, and thanks again for listening and for telling your friends and all that. Um, you can follow us. I already said that. What I didn't say, though, is that, hey, why not leave an iTunes comment? And not a shitty one. Don't leave a shitty no, comment. No, be nice. Yeah. Five stars. There's five of them. Use all five. And we do read your comments. And we love them. All right. Bye, everyone. I love you. Hey, do you know about the Allison Rosen Show? We had a good time, but 